as where Matthew taught us the uh, as where Matthew taught us uh, the king of all. Well, there we go. Yeah, she looks uh, As Matthew taught us that Jesus was the king of all, and we saw some things that were kind of uh, specific. The way that Matthew records is the tax collector would record in seminars, and he records sermons, seven specific sermons. There are five specific hills that he kind of pointed as a focal point if he were the director. Uh, a key phrase is the kingdom of heaven. By the way, you know, some will say this is, this is more times in this gospel than in the other gospels. This is infinitely more in this gospel than in the other, because the kingdom of heaven phrase is only used in the gospel of Matthew. So you can say it's a billion times more than all of the other ones, and more, because a billion times zero is still zero. Yeah. Um, but there's also the term fulfilled, because in one manner or another, in either direct or in allusion, uh, with an A, alluding to, there are over 200 references to the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. So, chances are, for instance, hint, nudge, wink, if I were to ask you something and you hear the key word fulfilled in a phrase, you might go, oh, that's probably in Matthew. And you're fairly, it's the best default for that. If you hear the term kingdom of heaven, that's a slam dunk. It's clearly the Gospel of Matthew. When you hear uh, the idea of Jesus having authority over things, the emphasis on his power, that is certainly going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. And for the most part, almost exclusively, the sermons are recorded in that style in the Gospel of Matthew. That's what I would expect. And so you'll see a lot of terms, the king, kingdom, big, 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 in the Gospel of Matthew. And with that, we learn what it's like to be a subject of the kingdom of God. We learn what it's like to represent the kingdom of God. It starts with the birth of king and, an, and the lineage that leads us from King David to the birth of Jesus. To, and it ends with him being sending us out as ambassadors to go into all the world and specifically make disciples, recruit students. Now we get to the Gospel of Mark. Now, the Gospel of Mark is a very different book in that way. It's certainly the shortest book. It is also the most teaching per capita. And by the way, there are going to be slots for those to fill in if you look, just so you know. Though it has the least amount of teaching per capita, it has the most amount of action per capita. And for what it's worth, more than 90% of the material in Mark is found in Matthew. It's a lot. More than 50%, or roughly 50% of the Gospel of Mark is found in Luke. If we were to break up the historical chunks of these four Gospels, might I suggest there is the emphasis of Jesus' Galilean ministry, which I can say with trips peppering down, there is Jesus taking the trip down between Galilee and that final week. And then there's the final week. Those three sections get emphasized in different books. In Matthew, for instance, we see that profoundly for what it's worth. Matthew spends a great deal of his time in this area. Let me do this. I have so many different ones here. Here we go. To give you an idea, Matthew's Galilean ministry emphasis, which is, again, for what it's worth, 
it's basically three plus years of the three and a half years, if you think about it. Matthew spends roughly 72% of the gospel on that Galilean ministry. Mark, for what it's worth, will spend roughly 56% of the gospel in the Galilean ministry. He will also then, for what it's worth, spend roughly 40%, roughly, in that last week. But Luke, when we get to the Gospel of Luke, Luke spends most of his time on the trip down. Roughly, I think it's 9.51 to the middle of chapter 19, that whole section is Jesus walking down from Galilee down to his, uh, that final week. John, on the other hand, for what it's worth, 48% of his gospel is that last week. So we get the beginning emphasized in the first two gospels, the middle part in that loop, and then the final part in John. So they're lined up fairly well in regards to that. You with me so far? Mm-hmm. And again, we're just giving kind of the criteria of trivia. The writer, for what it's worth, the first time we actually see the writer is in the book of Acts. We do not see a mark listed in the Gospels, for what it's worth. As a matter of fact, the first time we read about him is in Acts chapter 12. And what we read, by the way, is Mark is actually not his first name. John, whose surname is Mark. So, and that's kind of different altogether there. So, I mean, that's cat name you'd be calling, you know, or whatever the case, or holiday in my case, which some people like to call me because... Heck, it's holiday. Anyway, we do know, by the way, for what it's worth, that the first time he's introduced, we recognize that there's a house where people are praying, and it happens to be John Mark's mother's house. That's for what's worth Acts 12. 12. Uh, where's dad? Why isn't it John Mark's dad's house? We don't know. We have no mention of John Mark's dad. But we do have a mention of John Mark's cousin. According to the book of Colossians, the cousin of John Mark is Barnabas, the guy who went with Paul, at that time Saul, until the middle of that trip, on his first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. And they take John Mark with them, by the way. And it is very important to note this. Paul, at the time Saul, and Barnabas leave a Syrian church in a place called Antioch, that today is basically called Antioch, Syria. There you go. And they left there and went through the island of Cyprus because Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. In other words, they were heading through Barnabas' hometown, if you will. They hit the east side, make their way over 100 miles to the west side, and the east side, Barnabas, I'm just like, Saul and Barnabas speak in a synagogue, relatively safe. They get to the west side. They have a showdown with a um, with a sorcerer. While, by the way, the only guy in Scripture God actually calls an intelligent man, the governor, his name is Sergius Paulus, which literally means born a little wonder, for what it's worth. Uh, it's a nice name. Sees Paul as a showdown with this Bar-Jesus character is his name. Interesting, because in front of Sergius Paulus is the first time we read, and Saul 
who is called Paul. Which means least or little. Is where Saul Shi'al means Once they get to that west side, two boats depart from Cyprus. Ultimately. They're going to head into the coast of Turkey and head their way up into the center of Turkey. But John Mark, who had been with him, and, and in a simple sense, Barnabas seems to be the oldest, so he was kind of the guy ahead. And then there was an assistant and an apprentice. The assistant was actually Paul, and the apprentice was John Mark. But John Mark, he headed home to Jerusalem where Mom was. We don't read exactly what it was that led him there, but can I just say, there were two boats that sat at the dock, and one was a boat of great adventure, and another one was a boat of safety and familiarity. And Saul took one, Paul took one, and John Mark took the other. And then we get to read from that point on the amazing things that God did through Paul up in Turkey, which included, by the way, him being stoned and left to bed. And we can talk about that when we get to Second Corinthians about how he saw the seventh heaven and how that really lines up chronologically with the time when he was stoned. He may have very well died and God says, well, I want you to take a look at this because this is what you're fighting for. Now get that down there and do it. It would make a lot of sense. He certainly has quite a resolve after that. Just <clears throat> and the reason I say that is is that when Paul and Barnabas now, it was Barnabas and Saul until that moment. And, and I wonder if there's a lot that's going on, the dynamics changing from Barnabas to Saul to Paul and Barnabas. In other words, Paul gets the big name on the marquee. Barnabas is now the little guy, you know, special guest. And John Mark, his cousin's now taking the back seat. But also things are getting real dicey. They're getting full-on spiritual challenge. And John Mark just bails. Well, they come back. And now Paul wants to go and check on those churches again. And Barnabas is determined to take John Mark with him. And it tells us that there was no small contention. That's a very British phrase. Mm-hmm. You know what no small contention means? They were about to duke it out. Mm-hmm. Now, who's right and who's wrong? They both are. Barnabas was a people person. He was about the people. And therefore, he sees that there is a need to see that guy restored. Is that right? That's a great thing. Barnabas, I'm sorry, Paul is a works person. He wants to make sure that the integrity or the work has integrity. And he is not going to take a guy in ministry that he cannot trust. Which, by the way, is also right. Why did he trust so much? Because he had flaked out on him the first time. In other words, he just didn't have, again, I'm reading into it, but it appears he just didn't have confidence that if he was going to take him, that he wasn't going to leave again. And why rely on somebody you can't trust? The problem was not that they both had a legitimate stance. And this is what happens with Christians, is we have a legitimate stance. The problem is how you handle it. The fact that they just about got into a fistfight in front of everybody else tells me that was the part they handled wrong. Somewhere down the line, you're like, maybe you're right and I'm right. Maybe the issue isn't who's right in this situation. Maybe we should pray and see whether we're supposed to do this together. And we have this phrase we use, vision collision. In other words, where all of a sudden your vision is collided in such a way that if you really want to fight over it, it's just a stupid thing and people are going to get hurt. Versus go out and just do it. And so Barnabas heads back to Cyprus. 
and that's pretty much almost the last year of him with, with John Mark. And Paul now needs another assistant. A guy had come up in Silas who takes him instead and then goes through Turkey and picks up Timothy there as his apprentice. All of that to say we follow Paul from that point on. But think about this. John Mark was somebody who clearly had a falling out with Paul. And it was ugly. He knows what it's like to fail. Does that sound fair? Well, for what it's worse than that, later in the ministry, for what it's worse, we read this. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5. He wasn't, he's like, you know, it's kind of you ending a letter, and they're like, hey, by the way, and you're like with your buddies, you know, and it's like, Paul says, hey, tell him, I said, oh, yeah, and Paul says, I know Lois says, may the, you know, may the road rise up to meet you, you know, and, uh, you know, and, you know, anyway, and, uh, you know, oh, yes, it's right, and there's this child, you know, well, you know, all of that, he's going, and by the way, he says, and this is Peter saying, and he goes, they all greet you, and, and so does Mark, my son. Somewhere between that moment and this moment, John Mark has encountered Peter, and Peter, in essence, has spiritually adopted him. But who better to understand what it's like to fall on your face and be restored than Peter? Would that be fair? The only thing left is, does the guy ever get restored to Paul? Right before Paul was going to be executed, he writes this in chapter, and that's, by the way, his last letter is 2 Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Somewhere before Paul dies, John Mark is restored to him. To a point where it looks like Paul is even willing to put him in ministry. There's a difference between a Christian that needs to be restored and a person that needs to be put back in ministry, for what it's worth. And we need both. We need people, people, if you will, and we need work people. Because if you're all compassion with no wisdom, and I don't mean that in a mean way, you will actually compromise the integrity of something in doing so. You'll be like, oh, that person's a pretty cool person, and come on, give them a second chance. But you know, that means what happens is you put a child molester back in children's ministry kind of thing. You never want to do that. There is wisdom. Well, are you with me so far? This is why most of the conservative scholars out there, whatever that means, believe that John Mark, because again, we haven't met him until Acts 12, that John Mark was actually interviewing Simon Peter for the Gospel of Mark. There's no genuine proof of that, but there are early church fathers who do say that was the case. It is worth considering, because there are guys who are a lot smarter than me that were a lot closer to the events that actually say so. But, again, it's not scripture, so we, we, that's no hill to die on. Is that fair? But I am going to address an issue. God willing, we get the time by the time we're done. Um, at the end of Mark 16, because it's one of the areas I do have a real problem with. Have you ever told you earlier manuscripts do not contain this text? Oh, I'm going straight for the throat of that later. I just want you to know, because if anything happens to make you not trust your Bible, that's one of the theories, my feathers will ruffle. Fair enough? So, the writer, John Mark, by the way, there is this interesting text unique to the Gospel of Mark that says when Jesus is being arrested, that a young man is actually just in his nightclothes, they grab the nightclothes and he runs off naked. Because it's only in the Gospel of Mark, some people actually believe it was John Mark. He was a young man, what we read in Acts 12, he would have been a younger man when Jesus was arrested, 
But we have no proof of that. We do know there was a young man streaking that left Jesus. Was he John Mark? You can decide. When you get to heaven, you can ask, but by that point, you're going to be on your face before Jesus in the sacrament. The recipients, they are, in essence, Gentile in nature. And I'll give you a few reasons why. First of all, Jewish traditions are explained. In other words, oh, they have these, this is what they do, these washing of cups and pitchers and couches, and they wash their hands. It's like, if you were Jewish, you wouldn't have to have that explained to you. Fair enough. Also, by the way, unique to the Gospel of Mark, is he quotes a lot of Aramaic words and tells you what they mean. Now, Aramaic, for what it's worth, was kind of the abonic of Hebrew. The Hebrews were taken captive in Babylon, and they kind of did this Hebrew-Babylon hybrid, and that's called Aramaic, if you will. Kind of like Essex, if you will. Or, I mean, it's like, you know, where people, see, there's laughter here. Because it's like, sooner or later, it's like, you know, some people are like, I'm not really sure that's English, you know, but you get the idea. For instance, he says, oh, these boys he named Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. If you actually spoke Aramaic, he wouldn't have to tell you it means sons of thunder. He tells the little girl, Talithakumi, which means little girl, get up, because we'll assume you don't know what Talithakumi means. He tells the man, Ifasa, which means be opened. He even defines the word Abba, which tells me they are clearly not Hebrew speakers, because Abba is both Hebrew and Aramaic, if you will. And it doesn't mean daddy. If you were raised in a, any Hebrew home, you know the word Abba. He, he is the one who translates, Eloi, 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 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Golgotha, the skull. He also uses a lot of Latin terms, like census, denarius, quadrants, modus, praetorium, those kind of things. And another thing, by the way, interestingly enough, in Mark 13, he points out the Mount, that the Mount of Olives is across from the temple. Now, if you lived in the area, I won't have to tell you from this point on that the Spanish galleon is across from the DLR station because you've been here. But if you haven't been there, which leads me to believe he's writing to people who may actually have never been here to see this, or he wouldn't have to tell you that. Or at least they haven't been there enough to be familiar with it. Fair enough? Okay, last couple of things, and then I want to pray one more time so we can just kind of get into the book. Fair enough. In uh, here we go. So again, first half of the first chapter, so the half of the first ten chapters are miracles. What it's worth. A third of the gospel as a whole. That focus, it is important to note. The focus is on the one-on-one Jesus is attempting to have, but the focus in general is on the multitudes. We're going to see more than any other book per capita, there is a huge emphasis on the multitudes showing up. And we'll get that when we go through it. But in regards to the one-on-one, the multitudes are getting in the way of Jesus having his one-on-ones. Interesting, because Jesus never seems to equate success with having an awful lot of people around him. It seems to me that Jesus' intention is more on making sure he gets a one-on-one with you. And Mark emphasizes that. As a matter of fact, Mark is going to develop people more than anyone else. That demoniac on the other side of the lake, he's going to give us all kinds of details we can't get anywhere else. In other words, you're going to really know this guy is in grave need. We're also going to get a great deal of details on the guy that's at the bottom of the mountain after Jesus is transfigured. 
He's like, wow, that kid's in a lot of sorry shape. And we get that. In other words, Mark really wants you to know when Jesus is going to serve someone, that person really needs to be served. Does that sound fair? So one of the key words we're going to see, there will be a few words, but one of the key words is the word immediately. A third of all the times the word is used in the entire Bible is this little gospel, Mark. Immediately this, immediately that. Which, is, which means, by the way, when you read the word immediately, the good default is that's probably the gospel of Mark. Multitudes. 25 times he's going to mention it in this book. And two other words. The word preach and the word gospel. So if you were the cameraman, he would want you focusing on shooting behind the multitude, trying to shoot through the multitude as Jesus trying to get at a single person. How's that for a kind of a fun visual, if you will? And there is a constant immediacy. If you're an editor, if you will, or director, trying to get that constant, there's a constant immediate need in front of you. So we might say that there's a focus on the immediate crowd, if you will. Is that fair? We're going to share that I've said Make sure there's nothing else. Uh, we'll see. By anyways, we'll see the immediately. So we'll see an immediacy in the opposition as well. See where gospel and all that great. Okay. Key verses, and then we'll close this. Uh, pray for one moment, and then we're going to go straight through the book. Okay. If anyone desires to be first, he must be the servant of all. And we'll see these when we get through them too as well. You want to be great, but not so among you. Whoever desires to be great shall be shall be your servant. For the Son of Man did not even did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is a book about the greatest servant under all. When I read Matthew, I learn how to be a constituent of the kingdom of God. But if you will, Mark is servanthood 101. I'm learning how to be a servant of Jesus through this book. And the teaching style, for the most part, is learning by action. Because if I'm going to learn how to serve, guess what? You're not going to learn how to serve, for the most part, from a guy sitting here and telling you what to do. You learn serving by actually following another servant along. Does that make sense? Why this book, more than any, is going to way focus on action. I'll develop chapter one more than I will any other, so don't think the pacing's the same. Chapter one's more like an indie film, you know, where it's long established. Anyway, uh, the ministry begins. Matthew begins, by the way, I rem- listen to the difference here. Matthew begins with this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Do you see the focus already on David there? And the king. Mark starts with this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's important to note, by the way, why is gospel going to be so important and preach so important? Because what we'll get to by the last chapter, that thing where he says, go and preach the gospel to every creature, is there's no greater service to any human being than preaching the gospel to them. Every other service is secondary to that one. So, because it's focusing on a servant, there's no birth, no wise men, no shepherds, no Jesus being presented in the temple, no any of that. We go, we start chapter one with John the Baptist. I say JB, 
the real JB. That tells us John came baptizing with a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And he preached. John preached. Because servants preach. There was something that happened about ten years ago where we somebody told us that was a bad word. You know, I'm not going to preach. You know, and I love being able to say, according to Scripture, I'm like, well, then shame on you. Well, I'm not going to be, well, I'm like, you know, you say, well, just preach, man. You know, all preaching is is sharing information with the desire for the person to be persuaded by it. Every person preaches. They just may not tell you they are. Now, some very fundamental things. He will baptize with. You know, there's one who comes after me. He will baptize with, Matthew says, the Holy Spirit and fire. Mark says, the Holy Spirit. Doesn't mention fire there. Luke says, the Holy Spirit and fire. John doesn't mention that. He just says, there's one coming after me who was preferred before me, because he was before me. Even though, chronologically, I'm six months older, six months older than him on, on earth, he's forever, so he's older, really. Now, there's something I have to sort of point out here, little facts in these things, and this is one. Some love to put those two things together and say, he will baptize with the fire of the Holy Spirit. But in the, uh, in the verb tenses, or the verb cases of this, there's what's called the ablative case, which means they denote separation between the two things. Might I can just throw out as your consideration, these are two very unique and different things. In other words, we might even be able to put the word or in between it. Like, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, or he's going to baptize you with fire. Because he's baptizing with both. And that's the point John is making. Now, you accept Jesus Christ, he's going to baptize you with his Holy Spirit. You deny him, he'll baptize you with fire. Now, that sounds pretty mean and nasty, but for a king presented in the Gospel of Matthew, he has very much the right to do that. For what it's worth. Interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, he just says Holy Spirit because no servant should be without the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that fair enough? And again, just consider it. When Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks from heaven, we have three unique phrases. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And you are my beloved Son in you I am well pleased. Does that make sense? So you and you Obviously, focus. You are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. The opposite. Speaking to everyone else. And then there's the one that's in between. You're my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. There is a king, there is a servant, and there is a man to be represented, where these three times the statement's made. Which one did God say? All three. It's clearly recorded as all three. But might I suggest, as it's listed, which one would you want for a king? You would want the father to tell everyone else, hey, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Does that make sense? But as a man, as Paul pointed out well last week, you'd want the opposite. As a human being, you want God to say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved son. I'm sorry, in you I'm well pleased. But as a servant, reconcile, you are his beloved son. And then let him tell everyone else in you in him, or in whom I'm well pleased. There's the sweet part. We don't have to prove to everyone else that God's pleased with us. That would be God's job. Reconcile that you're his beloved son. And you go, well, but I'm a girl. 
God respected, uh, knew it. Girls were temporary members of family. To the Middle East to this day, they're considered temporary members of the family. You know why? Because more than likely, you're going to get married, carry on somebody else's name, and have babies for that family. Matter of fact, they consider you on loan. But if you're a... I'm trying to be honest. Trying to be honest. But if you're a son, you are a member of the family forever. And you're also responsible for the family honor, the family trade, and, if you will, for the family fortune. Why does God call you a son? Because you are not a temporary member of the family. Every one of us has seen that way. Praise God for that. That's the temptation. When in Matthew, I remind you, as a king, it's focusing on one specific day as a showdown. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry and the devil showed up for the showdown. In Luke, notice, it's actually that he's being tempted for 40 days is the focus. Because as a human, and we got there next week, as a human, man, it's just, there are going to be just seasons where it's just coming at you. And I can see, well, which one was it? It was both. But Luke really wants you to realize, as a human being, you're going to get it like this. But my king, though that was the case, my king took it down as a showdown, and he took him down. Well, what about the Gospel of Mark? Notice there, it really doesn't spend an awful lot of time. By the way, that all that, like, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, it's actually not in Mark at all. Mark just says he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and angels ministered to him. That's all you get of it, of the whole story of that part. In other words, it says, as a servant, there will be seasons of temptation. But as a servant, it's weird to know there will be beasts around you, but it's also good to know that angels will be helping you too. And we read in Hebrews 1, angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. So I'm good with that. Do you see, I mean, do you see these comparisons? which now puts me to a, it's not even a shameless plug, because I'm going to give them to you if you want. I have these books over here. And by the way, this book came because I wanted to study the Bible. And what I wanted is, I wanted to be able to compare each of the Gospels, the little unique things, not just the obvious, well, that story's in this one. But I wanted to be able to look at even how things are phrased like these things. So what I did is I had to take a, one of the Gospels, I took Matthew, and then I took every one of the things in Matthew and then I compared it to all of the other times that that's listed in the other Gospels. And that the book is the result of that. So if you want one, please take one on your way out. For what it's worth. All right. Y'all with me so far? I remind you, it's going to pick up here. But the chapter one is establishing. John is in prison and guess what Jesus does? He preaches the Gospel. Remember how John went preaching? Jesus went preaching. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He calls four fishermen. A demonic is, is exercised from a synagogue in Capernaum, by the way, casting out demons, and it's really happening. And it's going to catch some news, don't you think? Now, my first thought is, why wasn't he freaking out before Jesus showed up? He was in church. I mean, synagogue, but for the sake of it. Because Jesus wasn't there. That's why he wasn't having, I mean, and it's like, I think the devil could sit in a lot of church services and have no problem. Jesus needs to be there to bother him. But it's interesting, because then we get this text where it tells us that after that guy was delivered, you know what tells us? That Jesus then told him not to tell anyone. Don't you think that's kind of weird? 
Like, you ever hear that? And, like, and people try to figure that one out, right? It's like, well, you know, he does this thing. We're going to see with the leopard at the end. Oh, don't go tell anyone. Like, a guy's a leopard. And then he's like, people are going to go, you look different. Mm-hmm. You know? Your hand's bad. That kind of thing. We'll address that in a moment. Here, he goes and he does this. His fame starts to spread, and we start to see the introduction of a crowd. Now, with that, Jesus goes, shows up at P- Simon Peter's mo- mother-in-law's house. And by the way, it's important to recognize he heals her. She is served so she can serve. It tells us, by the way, in the book of Galatians, you've been set free, but don't, lose your, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for vice, but rather through love serve one another. He's like, God served you so you could serve others. There are some people here that inspire me by their service. They're quick to do stuff. Sometimes they're so quick to do stuff, I'm like, hold on, let me make sure you know what we're supposed to do. And I'm just so thankful for service. So what happens? Jesus heals the mother-in-law, and by the way, it isn't like mom just got so well that the whole town hears about mom getting well. Jesus just left the synagogue in Capernaum for this to happen. Does that make sense? And he's like, honey, you better get up, because company's coming. Well, who's coming? The entire city. And it tells us at evening, the entire city of Capernaum shows up with every sick person they can find. And it doesn't say that Jesus waved his hand over them all and said, be well. He gets one-on-one with them. He is, it says that he laid his hands on them. And it isn't like he has, he's an octopus. He laid his hands on them one at a time. Jesus is looking for that. Does that make sense? Hey, when God, re- when God revolutionizes your house, your house becomes a hospital for others. Mm-hmm. All right. That's the result. Then Jesus runs into a leper. Well, reaches out and touches him. And this is one of those things, again, servanthood 101. And this is one of those beautiful moments for me because, and it's interesting, when you look at terms like moved with compassion, Jesus as a king is moved with compassion by a crowd of people who are hungry and haven't been fed, and they look like sheep without a shepherd, because that's a good king. But a servant looks at a guy who's in a very sorry state, and what moves him to serve is compassion. I love that. And you know, sometimes the reason I'm not so quick to serve because I just don't have the compassion I really should have. And so this man, he then he says, don't go tell anyone. But first, go show yourself to the priest because they're going to have to do this crazy thing and look up in Leviticus because they haven't ever had to deal with a guy that was actually healed of leprosy. There was a guy healed of leprosy in the Old Testament. But do you know who he was? He was a Syrian. Well done. Named Nechaman. So that guy's not going to show up to the priest. He was Syrian. Where is that? Where is Syria? Where, no, where does that happen? Second Kings. So, yeah, matter of fact, we're almost there. Matter of fact, that's next week, I think, is right. Second Kings. And uh, <clears throat> so here, this is the first time a Jewish person has been healed of leprosy. That was the, I mean, other than you can argue Miriam at this whole moment where you stick your hand in one of But she wasn't healed. Well, anyway. Uh, she had some deals. Well, We'll talk about that some other time. Let's get to this. <clears throat> and so people go, well, I'll tell you why Jesus said don't tell anyone. Reverse psychology. Has anyone ever told you that? Like Jesus said, if he said don't do it, then they would do it. But if you think about it, I, that never sat well with me. Because what that says is, I know you're going to be rebellious, so let me play on your rebellion for a second. God, that just doesn't work for me. But listen to the result. He says, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer yourself 
Offer for your cleansing the things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely and spread the matter. So, the result, Jesus could no longer openly enter a city, but was outside it in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. You know what happened because this guy went and told people? Jesus couldn't get his one-on-ones like he wanted. And as a servant... A servant does not is not a great success because he gets a whole lot of people to follow him. A servant is successful by completing his mission. In the simple sense, as a servant, success is only one word, obedience. The results are God's anyways. There's the hard part. Y'all following me? Now we pick it up. Chapter 2. The multitude becomes a major issue, as you should expect from something like this. So as a result of that, it tells us in Mark 2, 2, that many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even at the door. And he preached the word to them. And by the way, so what happens is as a result, and I have to make sure because what I have written here, uh, in Mark chapter 2, the first result is that it makes it hard for people to bring others to Jesus. Crowds make it hard. Now, that doesn't mean it makes it hard to bring people to church. Because if you have an awful lot of people at church, it's fairly easy to invite someone to church because it's happening. And if it's happening, but you're not inviting them to Jesus by just doing that. But getting them to have a personal encounter with Jesus, that's a different story altogether. And one thing we learned is once our church got over a thousand people in the States, one of the first things we noticed is a lot of people came in and left because they could be anonymous. And that was a cool thing for them. They felt safe with that. And I'm like, that is not what I want. When we got to the point where it was like, we had a Saturday night service, three Sunday morning services, two afternoon classes, and then a Sunday night service, just to break it up as much as we could so that we could get it small enough so that we could get to people. But it's like some people, and I don't want to diss it, but you get the point. One of the first things that becomes clear is that one of the results of having this big, massive thing is it's hard to bring people to Jesus. Well, that becomes our point. The second thing is religious opposition. The moment you start seeing something take off, that's the moment other people take special note and want to find fault. Hey, nobody seemed to have a problem with Rick Warren until he sold a million copies of his book. Now, I'm not here to judge Rick Warren or his book. To be honest, I personally haven't read it on purpose. Some people say, what do you think of Rick Warren? I'm like, I've never met the guy. What do you think of his book? Never read it. There you go. You know, people go, oh, I think, well, I don't to be honest, have you met him? The point is that he wasn't on the radar until he did something important or what seemed to be important inside of other people. Now, whether he's good or bad, it's not for me to judge. Not at this point. It's not, that's not my job. But the moment something starts to happen, it's amazing how even people that seem like their colleagues now have a real problem with you, and they're going to find some fault. And certainly in the case of this, Jesus is going to start blowing them out of the water because they're steeped in tradition that contradicts Scripture. And that's his problem. So in chapter 2, there's no longer people to receive him, and of course they have to let the paralytic down through a hole in the roof. Assumedly, probably Simon Peter's mother-in-law. Um, paralytic is going to be healed and forgiven. He's going to call Matthew, of course. And with that, and they object to all kinds of things as a result of it, including Sabbath for them. Chapter 3. Jesus is back in the Capernaum synagogue. Last time that we know that he was there, he delivered a demoniac. 
This time, there's a man with a withered hand. He calls him to the front and asks him to stretch it out, and he does. But he asks him, is it good on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And then he gets angry. And it tells us he is grieved at the hardness of their hearts. A servant is grieved as well. A servant is moved by compassion, but a servant is grieved by hard hearts. And it tells us that Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and a great multitude followed him. They followed him from Idumea, Jordan, beyond the Jordan, Tyre, and Sidon. That's way north now. That's in the area of Lebanon today. A great multitude, they heard all that he was doing. They came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. Another result of this crowd is that Jesus was in danger of getting crushed. How did I list it here as the third thing? I said, result three, Jesus is in a crowd. He was in danger of being crushed. But here's the one. And again, here's the thing. Once you start helping meet people's needs, what you're going to find is lots of people are going to start showing up. And Jesus does something really remarkable. He gets alone and he prays. And they're like, after the whole city had been healed in Capernaum, if you will, and he's like, let's go elsewhere. And you're like, are you kidding we have a city without illness now. How amazing is that? This would be the greatest place to set up a church. And he's like, no, we have other places to go now. Because we have other places to go preach. And I really like that. Because what happens is, is you get so caught up in seeing all the needs, you try to meet all of it, and as a result of that, you don't meet any of it. And Jesus is asking the Father, Father, where do I go? Where, where do you want me? What need do you want me to meet? I love that. But here becomes one of the most painful parts to me. And it's easy to miss. The fourth response. Listen to Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then the multitude came together so that they could not as much as eat bread. It wasn't just that the food didn't show up at the pub. But when his own people heard about this, they went to lay hold of him for they said he's out of his mind. Who are his own people? Hmm. According to Mark chapter 3, verses 31 and 32, the multitude was sitting around him and they say, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Do you know who his own people are? His family. You ever thought how crazy it is that Mary might have gone and said, Jesus has lost his mind. Now, wait a minute. This great Mary who does the Magnificat, this glorious Mary that now is their shrine for, I know this sounds really horrible, but she was a human being who struggled like every other human being struggled. And what made her get there is that Jesus was so engulfed in, in the crowds that it's like he's working himself to death. There, this will happen to you too, by the way, when you're serving the Lord. Because people will say that one word that I hear more than any other, overboard, have you heard that at all? Or hyper. We'll get hyper-spiritual. See, I mean, come on. I mean, you already go to church every, every Sunday. Isn't that extreme? And now you're going to go like, to this thing on a Wednesday night? What's wrong with you? I am concerned. 
and you know inside what's going on in there is you've gone crazy. You've become a nutter. Well, it's good to know Jesus understood that. How hard would it be? And just to make it even better, to ease their fears, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Those who do the will of God, that's my mother and my brothers, which I don't think would have helped Mary out at all. I don't think, oh, well, he's clearly saying, look at what he just said. I mean, in other words, Jesus was not going to compromise even in the midst of all of that. But it's hard to read that, isn't it? When you realize his own people weren't, and then it's like, who came for him? His mom and his brothers. And you go, oh, oh. Then we have one other big issue here in chapter 3. And that is the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? And how does it look? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that look like? Do you know if you actually become a card-carrying member of the Church of Satan, you have to say, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Which, by the way, isn't what Jesus asked you. It isn't what Mark says it refers to. But you know, the idea is when they, when they get people to say that, they're like, well, look it. You can't be forgiven. What it tells us is that they were accusing Jesus of doing everything that he did through the power of Satan. That's what they say. And then, like, that's exactly what Mark says. This is what Jesus said because they said that this is all of Satan and not God. If you believe that everything that Jesus did was through the work of Satan, why would you ever ask for his forgiveness? And the only way that any sins are going to be forgiven is to come to Jesus and ask for his forgiveness. But to say, oh no, all that was actually Satan's work? Well, then he's not your Savior. So it's a simple thing. But I can confidently say, none of you have done that. You're not going, oh, forget it, I'll never accept Jesus, because after all, he's just Satan in disguise, if you will. Satan's paper boy. So anyways, that should at least give you some fear, I pray. And again, don't just believe me. It's right there in chapter 3. All right. Is attributing Jesus' miracle and his power to Satan. And this is this that he said because they said that he works through the power of Satan. I'm sorry, I'm only saying what Mark said. All right. We're now a quarter of the way there. So we're picked up. Chapter 4, he's teaching the multitude. By the way, when Jesus gets to the multitude, he teaches. That's what he does. When he gets to one-on-one, he does personal care. But when there's a multitude, he teaches. That's what he does. So. Now, <clears throat> in chapter 4, since he's teaching, there is a teaching recorded. This is one of the very few places you could find a sermon-type thing in the Gospel of Mark. And there is one exclusive parable that you'll only find in Mark. The parable of the seed. Not the seed in the sowers, that's clearly in in Matthew. The seed is, this guy plants seed, and then he goes to sleep, and it grows. He doesn't even know how it grows. He's not there to watch it. It's a miracle. What a miracle! And it grows part by part. Stem comes out, and the leaves, and then the beginning, the beginning of the fruit, and then the full fruit of it. He says, you need to recognize, that's like God's kingdom. And it's amazing, because you ever, like, you ever, like, sometimes it's like you want to preach the gospel to someone, and then you're like, so, you're going to, like, accept that or what? And they're like, what? 
I mean, it's like the seed's been planted, but it hasn't had time to grow. Now, there's, there are times where God could just do that all in a moment. He's God. But he's like, you've got to trust the seed. I love the fact that it's unique to the Gospel of Mark, and that's because, to be honest, Mark, again, this whole thing's going to lead up to us being servants, and it's the greatest act of service. We preach the Gospel to every creature. So he's priming us with that here. He's like, yeah, you preach the Gospel, and the seed is planted, and it's going to grow even when you're sleeping. Aren't you thankful? This is the great part about not having to convince someone. When I walk away, you're still the Holy Spirit's problem. Praise God. So, uh, he, leaves, he leaves the multitude, and as he leaves the multitude, he sends his boys in a boat and says, cross to the other side of the lake. By the way, a place that the boys would never have gone, because no good Jewish person ever crosses the lake to the Sea of Gatherings, or what it's like to the other side. For a few reasons. There's a graveyard right there. It's considered Roman territory. It's part of the Decapolis, which means ten cities of Rome uh, that they had planted on that side. And, of course, there's this crazy guy, this demoniac. But please hear me in this, because this is really important. In chapter 4, they hit their first of two storms. Remember that? And there, Jesus is asleep. He's actually right there with them. By the way, the term for sleep there isn't the term that means he's in a deep sleep. There's, by the way, the term literally means he's resting. And I do like the word, because in other words, the emphasis is not. Now, whether he's snoring and he's actually sawing logs or not, it, the word, it could be included in it, but it's not what the word emphasizes. What the word emphasizes is, is though the storm is happening and everybody else thinks they're going to die, Jesus isn't remotely stressed at this moment. That's the point. He's at total peace and rest of it. Now, could he be awake in that happening? It's possible. It's still not a betrayal of the word. But the most obvious is he's probably out cold. Which, by the way, still seems a little strange to me, because if the boat's rocking like that, it's a supernatural sleep. Well, let's be honest. One way or another, it's a supernatural peace, regardless. But one thing we can be sure of is that Jesus is not alarmed. But here's the thing in the first of these two storms. The whole mission or goal is to survive. They think they're going to die. And by the way, I challenge you on your own time, you know, if you get one of those or otherwise, to look at their phrases that they use when they come at Jesus because they're distinct in each one of the Gospels and how they emphasize those three things. If you care, we're perishing. We're dying here. I'm not going to make it to this. That's our first storm. So what does Jesus do? He gets up, he rebukes the storm, and everything's settled. They've been at it all night. You ever been in a place where you think you're going to die? I had a Russian fella because we had been pulling gals out of uh, trafficking. I woke up once with him with a gun to my head. In your heart? Yeah, in a hotel. And pulled the trigger. And of course, I'm like, I mean, I'm in Israel. I mean, if there's ever a express lane down anyway uh, they say a prayer and Israel's like a local call uh, and I'm like what and I'm like it was amazing because my first thought usually is to like wake Kung Fu on a guy like that I mean if, if he's going to try to tell me he's going to never forget me well 
but I was like, it just happened so quick, and he pulled the trigger, and, and you could hear click, and he's like, next time, this will not be empty. <laughs> and then he left the ring. I like, wow. So I tell you what, the whole rest of the day, you're a different person. There's no doubt you're a different person. I'm sorry, that was an Anyways, uh, the point is but the reason I say that they've been in this thing where they're convinced they're going to die. And then they're like, who can this be that even the women feel bad? And they get the answer from the strangest person. A demoniac on the other side of the river. On the other side of the lake that says, what have we to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? He actually answers the question, strangely enough. There's one thing I need to point out in chapter 5 in regards to this. By the way, Mark is going to spend more time than any on you really actually. I really think one of the reasons that Mark really develops these characters, do you remember what moved Jesus to serve? Compassion. For him developing these stories for us and these characters, I think it's to elicit compassion. I mean, you go, hey, there's that possessed guy on the other side, and that's all you get? Or that he's a danger and he's a freak out to everyone? It doesn't necessarily elicit compassion when you live in London, especially if you're spending any time in Camden. But when you're like, hey, this guy's crying every night, and he's cutting himself with stones, it's like what we would hear wouldn't sound like crying, I guarantee you. It'd sound like something hor- horrible. It'd sound like hell itself. He's crying. And he's cutting himself with stone. And you get, I mean, I'll be honest, I read that story and it hurts me to read it. It's one of my favorite stories. I wrote a song called Man of the Tombs because of Mark's account. And uh, it's one of my favorite songs for that. But, uh, but there's one particular phrase after he tells us how horrible this guy's life is. I mean, nobody can find this guy. And he's just clearly mad. He's dwelling in the tomb. And he's cutting himself with stones and he's crying out every night. But listen to this verse. After all of this, and what's clear is hell itself is just rattling this guy's life. This guy's helpless. Then you read, but when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Do you know what that tells me? It doesn't say they ran and worshipped him. He ran and worshipped him. And what this teaches me is that there is no power in hell or all the powers of hell are incapable of stopping a person from worshipping God if they're determined to get there. Jesus is not going to let that happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just read this guy is more than a mess. But when he sees Jesus from a distance, there's nothing that helps me to stop him getting there. I just think that that's amazing. Well, you know the story cast the ultimately cast uh, demons into the swine. Unique to the Gospel of Mark, it's numbers. He tells us it's about 2,000. Important to know. There you go. All right, so uh, Jesus crosses the boat, gets in a boat again in chapter 5, and now we're going to cross over. In other words, by the way, you're probably aware of the fact that um, that the only reason Jesus crossed over the lake was for this guy. It wasn't like 
Jesus did a route or a, a route or he did some form of circuit, there was a guy crying that we were all didn't want to go near and Jesus was like, he's actually calling for help. And he goes over there and he takes care of the guy and he's like, no, let's go. I mean, a lot of people start showing up but you know when they show up, they do, they say, leave. Do you know how twice Jesus was told to leave the presence of someone in the gospel and once he doesn't, once he doesn't? These people say, go and leave. But you know, somebody else said go and he didn't. It was Simon Peter after the catch of fish. He says, leave me. I'm a sinful man. You know, the difference is actually what you could fill the rest of the, the script with. The people are saying, leave us. We don't want you here. Peter says, leave me. I'm not worthy. So Jesus says to Peter, don't worry. This isn't time to be afraid. I'll get a call in a little. I love that. So, anyway, you with me so far? Okay, we're moving forward here. So, exclusive to the Gospel of Mark, by the way, are these two women. Uh, those stories are not exclusive. Yaris' daughter, she's 12 years old, and a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Mark tells us those two 12-year statements. And it's fairly easy to put them together. You know what's interesting? The woman who lunges for the hem of his garment... You know when he turns around, you know the first word he says to her? Daughter. He is on his way to raising a daughter from the dead. Yonas' daughter. The synagogue ruler's daughter. And you can imagine, he's like, hurry, she's dying, she's dying. And this gal stops. He's thronged with a multitude. And this gal lunges anyways. And he stops everyone. He's like, you know, hey, somebody touch me. And you can imagine his disciples are like, everybody touched you. He's like, no, no, no. We're not talking about, and hear these terms, coincidental and concerted. A lot of people coincidentally bumped into me, but somebody considerably reached out. Boy, Jesus knows. And he turns and he's not going to let her sneak away with a miracle because he wants a one-on-one. So he gets a daughter. Jesus made you well. Then he goes and raises the other daughter by saying, Talitha Kumi, which Mark says, but you probably don't know what it means. It means little girl, get up. Chapter 6. It's the only gospel that tells us that Jesus is actually called the carpenter. By the way, do you know that? Wouldn't that make sense? That would be actually in the one about a servant. In Matthew, they say, isn't it the carpenter's son? But here, distinctly. And by the way, it isn't carpenter. It's tekton, which means builder. Is that a carpenter? Well, uh, technically a carpenter is a builder, but he's not the only kind of builder out there. So some would say, oh, he's probably a stoneworker or a mason. Well, I'm like, he wasn't a Freemason, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well... Regardless of it, he was a builder. Texton. By the way, the first builder, the word for first is arche. So the first builder is an arche tecton. What word do we get from that? Architect. There you go. So, Jesus says that. He went on to preach that people should repent. And the multitude saw him again. And guess what? He begins to preach and teach to them. Of course he does. That's what he does. And immediately makes his, stu- his students, his disciples, get into a boat. And by the way, both of these times that they hit a storm, they are at obedience. This is not disobedience here. These are storms because they obeyed Jesus and did what he told them. For what it's worth, you're going to hit storms in obedience too. And now we're in storm 2.0. This storm is very different from the other one. Jesus says, let's just get to the other side. And they're rowing and rowing. Nobody thinks they're going to die in this one, by the way. And as they row and they row, they can't seem to get anywhere. Jesus is walking on the water. They finally invite him in. 
We know from the other Gospels, by the way, that's where Peter walks in water, but ultimately Jesus gets in the boat, and once he gets in the boat, they get to the other side. Now, hear me, the first storm, our whole goal is to survive. Our second storm, our goal is to get to the other side. And this is what happens with Christian growth. In the beginning, you hit some trial, and you're like, I'm never going to make it through this. But after you get through it, and the Lord will carry you through it, and you get near a storm like that again. By the way, wind in both cases is, seems to be the cause. Um, he, we just need to get to the other side of this now. Lord, get me to the other side. I really like that. Alright. Chapter 7. Jesus deals with the issue of uncleanness because now the religious leaders have stepped it up a little bit more and tried to make Jesus' life more miserable. So... Religious leaders, persecution intensifies over cleanness or uncleanness. Unique to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, Ephatha, which means be opened. That's the course of the Godness. He returns to the Decapolis, by the way. And when he returns to the Decapolis, that's where this guy is healed. That's going to be really important because it's important also to know something else happens in chapter 8, but it's like Jesus is going to feed the 4,000. When he feeds the 4,000, it's actually Gentiles in Decapolis. Well, where did that start? How did you get 4,000 Gentiles to show up? Because there was a demoniac that was, tra- that was delivered. When that demoniac was delivered, he actually went and actually... And by the way, interesting, when Jesus says to him, he's like, I'll go with you anywhere. Jesus says, go back to your friends. Like, this guy's friends. Probably not only was a demoniac. But he was a human being. You can forget, this was someone's baby. This was someone's son. And he had friends. He hasn't had him for a while. So in Mark chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 people. And Jesus ministers to a blind man unique to the Gospel of Mark twice. And I think this is important to realize. Jesus wasn't going to leave until this was finished. He lays his hands on the guy and he's like, okay, now, what do you see? And he's like, I see like people like trees. Like, everyone looks like broccoli. You know, if you've ever been to Israel, sometimes... Good, a good Jewish guy sometimes has the most killer fro you've ever saw in your life. Some of those guys are amazing. Anyway, all that said, he's just kind of like people, they look like trees walking around. And what does Jesus do? He pulls them out and he does it again. And I love the fact the idea of it is unique to the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is going to finish the job. If he starts it, he's going to finish it. That's what a servant does. Beautiful to learn. Sorry, the question. Yes, yes. When he healed the, the guy with the demon, yes. did he tell them, tell them to not to tell people? He actually says, go back to your family. Because actually the difference is he says, I'll just follow you. And he's like, don't follow me. Go back to your family and your friends. Interesting. And what he does is he will do that. But then the next time Jesus shows up there, there are lots of people. He's got 4,000 men to feed for him. So he was pretty effective. So... <clears throat> Chapter 9. After coming down from transfiguration, Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples argue over greatness. So he gives his first clear declaration of his death and resurrection. I'm going to die and resurrect. That's where Peter says, no, no, don't. That's never going to happen. You got me, Jesus. And by the way, interesting, unique to the Gospel of Mark, a little side thing you can miss. Jesus turns and sees his disciples looking. And that's, it appears to me, that's why he rebukes Peter so openly. Because it's one thing to pull Peter aside and go, boy, you're really misguided on this. 
hey, thanks, I really appreciate your heart, that's really cool, but this is necessary. And in which case, you could have ministered to Peter in this. But at this particular moment, Peter's like, there's no way you're going to the cross. They're going to have to get through me, that kind of thing. And Jesus sees the rest of the disciples, and now he's going to have to, he's going to, have to openly and boldly say something, not just for Peter's sake, but for all of theirs as well. And that's something a servant does. That's, again, in the Gospel of uh, Mark, chapter 9. And as he does, I'm sorry, yeah, in, in chapter 8 is the first time he predicts it, chapter 9 the second, for what it's worth. And then he sits down with the 12 and he says, look, if you really want to be great, you've got to be the servant of all. That's just the way it works. It's important to know pretty much any slot that's going to be there involving greatness, it's going to be the word server, servant. That's just the way it plays out there. I remind you, he's come down from the Transfiguration. Three guys were up there. They couldn't heal a boy down at the bottom of the hill, the rest of them. And of course, from that point on, they're arguing over who's greater. It's like, okay, Jesus is going to be Lord, but I'll be vice Lord. That's just what we but it's also important to note, if you really want to be first, you should be the servant of all. And there's a phrase unique to the Gospel of Mark and used three times in that when he talks about people who are actually going to never say yes to him, but just seek him anyways. And he says that the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Are you aware of the fact Jesus spends more time on hell than he does on heaven? Is it because he wants to scare us in heaven? Absolutely not. He just doesn't want you to be deceived that the choice should be a difficult one. People say, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I say, God doesn't send you to hell. You make the choice yourself. But how can a reasonable person choose it? I'm like, well, why would God create a place like hell? And I'm like, to make your choice easy. Well, there you go. Chapter 10. Are we there? Want to make sure? Mm-hmm. We need to, um, so, worm does not die, fire not quenched. Chapter 10, we're on our last few things. And somebody's having issues. In chapter 10, by the way, for what it's worth, Jesus gives his third clear declaration of his death and resurrection. And again, it shall not be so among you if you will. And he says, by the way, the Gentiles, what it looks like to be awesome is to lord over everyone else. To be everyone's boss. He goes, but not in the kingdom of heaven. You just need to know in, the, in God's kingdom, I should say, because we use that proper term. You really want to be great there? Get underneath and serve everyone. If you need to be the servant of all. By the way, there's nothing in my flesh that says, ah. That's what I was hoping you would say. Yeah. Which I think is part of the point of it. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's Jesus' greatest service? His ransom. You are what a ransom is, right? A ransom is only paid to a hostage situation. Here's the most amazing part. According to First John, you know why we're in a hostage situation? We walked there ourselves. We actually threw ourselves to our captors through sin. And the only ransom that could be paid was Jesus. And he goes, this is the greatest service for what it's worth. All right, let's bring this around and close it. Chapter 11, triumphal entry. By the way, unique to the Gospel of Mark, and it's very important to note this. What day does Jesus have his triumphal entry? Sunday, because we call it Palm Sunday. So that's fairly safe. You with me so far? Tell us, first day of the week. We got that. As a man who has had 
violent issues BC, before Christ. Uh, and yeah, none of that needs to be developed. And never rub me right when someone says it's justifiable at all. When they say there's one moment Jesus turned into the Hulk. You know, he was in the temple. He saw everyone with their wares, selling their wares, and Jesus like turns green, his shirt rips open, his tunic rips open, or whatever. He's like, yeah! He just starts beating up everyone. And, and it's like, you get this idea, like, Jesus is overcome with this outburst of wrath. Which, by the way, is the work of the flesh, according to Galatians chapter 4 and 5. What is it? I'm like, I can't imagine Jesus would lose it there like that. Then I read the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, it tells us this. On Palm Sunday, Jesus descends in, and it was, the hour was already late. So he goes back to the Mount of Olives, to Bethany specifically. By the way, that's where Lazarus is. Um, Jesus never spent the night in Jerusalem, by the way. So let's face it, when everyone wants to kill you in Jerusalem, why not spend the night with your friend up on the hill? That makes sense, yeah? And then it says, the next day, Jesus wanted to clear them to Bethany. This was not a freak-out moment. Jesus went in. He told us he looked around. And then he came back. And I can only imagine, on that night, he's like, Lord, Father, what do I do about this? And he's like, this is... In other words, it was not an outburst of wrath. It was calculated. It was premeditated. Does that make sense? As a matter of fact, once he does that, it says, then the blind and the lame were brought to him so that he could heal them. Now, if Jesus totally freaked out. Would you actually ask him? You might even go, maybe we should come back another day. If he really was that freaked out, would you bring anyone right after that? And it's just so amazing to me how, if we read all of the Gospels, we kind of go, oh, this story's a little bit different than the way I envisioned it, or I saw it in the movie or whatever. Does that make sense? That's a big one for me, by the way. And of course, then that next day, but on Monday, it's also the day of challenge. We clean these people out, if you will, and then he gets challenged. Every group has their own thing. You know, it's sort of like, oh, well, why don't we ask this time? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, oh, well, there's really a resurrection, and this guy was married to all of these guys, and it was okay because it was legal. Who's she married to in heaven? And everyone's got their story. What's the greatest commandment? Unique, strangely enough, to the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus says it's to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, he actually starts, and by the way, you might be familiar, that's the second half of the Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, but it starts with Shema, which means hear. Hear, O Israel. The Lord God is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart. And so in other words, God goes, after I've given you all these commandments and all of these things, let's just make it simple. Please, would you just hear this? If you didn't hear everything, hear this. This is what I want. Your love. I love that. Unique to the Gospel of Mark, he quotes the whole Shema on that, if you will. He starts with the hero Israel. Unique to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 13 is his end times message. This is, a, this is his other sermon in Mark. Which, by the way, we get in Matthew 24 and 25, a lot more elaborate, of course. Uh, very likely, or very possible, Matthew could have been writing it down as Jesus was saying it. However the case is, whether Mark was there or not, somehow it had to be recounted. But there's one thing that's focused in the Gospel of Mark. Again, we're only 16 chapters. We're there. 
He says, this is what's going to have to happen first. The gospel must be preached to all nations. Then the end will come. This is why some people are like, well, if we really want Jesus to return, we need to preach the gospel to everyone. We call it dominion theology. It's like, this is what we need to do, then God will respond. Well, it's important to note that when you read the book of Revelation, even at the end, an angel with the everlasting gospel spans the whole earth preaching the everlasting gospel before the end comes. So, I mean, in the end of it all, it's like, what about that poor guy on the island all alone by himself, like Jack Sparrow or something? I mean, you know, there's always someone. It's like, well, like obviously you're really concerned. Well, what about that kid in China? Have you ever been there? One of the most thriving churches I've ever been to were in China. And the one place where they say, if you teach for less than six hours, we will be upset. I'm like, okay. <laughs> in one row? Oh, in a row. Oh, yeah. Wow. You sit there and people stand for eight hours at a time and applaud you when they're done. And I'm like, well, then you come back to church and it's like a half hour and people are like, ah, are you kidding me? Okay. I'm, I'm done. <clears throat> but it's important to note, <clears throat> it's important to note, at the twinkling of an eye, what it tells us is at any moment he can show up. And the church clearly believed that because otherwise the Thessalonian church wouldn't have had such a problem when someone said he already showed up and came and, me, and he left you behind. And they were freaking out, as I would if I believed that. If they didn't believe he was coming at any time, they'd be like, he hasn't come yet because all these things haven't happened. <clears throat> well, last few things. The arrest now, uh, chapter 14 now, uh, there is this arrest, of course, we're familiar with all that, Peter's denials. Two very important things that are unique to the Gospel of Mark <clears throat> in this particular chapter. One is, that there's an emphasis on the witnesses giving false testimony. <clears throat> this is one of my favorite things in Levitical law, by the way. If a guy gives false testimony or a girl gives false testimony, whatever the crime, whatever the punishment would be for that crime gets inflicted on the false testifier. I think that's great. Now, a rape situation is punishable by death. A girl wants to invent a story of rape, it would be punishable by death. Now, look at I'm not trying to stop a girl from saying that if it happened. She needs to be open and bold about it because if she knew that the punishment would be proper, I think there might be a few more people more bold. Although, I'd be honest, we've dealt with a lot of people that have had those issues, and it's a, it's a very complicated thing. <clears throat> but if somebody wants to play that game and put somebody in that position, hey, there are clearly people you know that we've seen that have done horrible things, and now everybody wants to accuse everyone of sexual misconduct. Has everyone done it? Likely not everyone, but clearly more people. Some people are emboldened, and some people are, to be honest, I think <clears throat> there's going to be someone that's like, this is how I'm important at the moment. But this is what it says. Now, you're testifying, you've actually been raised up by the religious leaders. And we'll talk on another day about the uh, <clears throat> jurisprudence. Jurisprudence, there are ten commandments, if you will, of jurisprudence. In other words, things that have to happen for a proper, uh, for a proper trial. And of those ten things, every one of them was broken at Jesus' trial. And one of them is you can have no false. Eight, one false witness constitutes a mistrial. The problem was the religious leaders were the ones who actually brought in the false witnesses. But here's the most amazing part according to the Gospel of Mark. I remember reading it the first time and saying, are you kidding me? I literally said it out loud as I was reading. It is said that one guy said one thing, another guy said another, and they didn't agree. That's false witness. And they turn to Jesus and say, so what do you have to say about that? What? I mean, I think it's, it's in front of us. Anyways, so that's unique to the Gospel of Mark. 
The other thing is, unique to the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that when the rooster crows twice, and the other ones we say, when the rooster crows, well, it's clear that that's the case. So why would Mark, of all Gospels, tell us when the rooster crows twice? Can I say there's an act of mercy in that? As a servant, Jesus is serving Peter to let you know, there's going to be a warning shot before you're going to get one between the eyes with this. Hey, when you're denying Jesus, and you hear that first rooster crow, and you know that's not a clean animal to be sticking and running around the temple, that's a little strange of a thing they have at Hakaiphas' house. You know, wow, that's really strange. Jesus said that. You must be way caught up in your thing at that moment to keep going. But anyway, so that's so there is that. Chapter 15, because I want to get to that last thing where, I, again, we're going to go with the throat punch on that last thing. <coughs> Jesus, of course, our blessed Savior dies. I'm crying aloud, you know, I'm laughing and so forth. And uh, it's important to note that the multitude was there actually asking for Barabbas. Important to note that they are actually listed. Uh, kind of, really, kind of the last time you see the multitude is actually not. When it says the multitude, does that imply that it's so that is a great question. And I will say, it's, it does say the multitude. So there is a definite article. So there is a likeliness to that. I mean, obviously, it's not just a multitude at that time. So it's one apparently we would recognize as the crowd. Oh, that's that crowd. Jesus now, of course, in chapter 16, is resurrected. Glory to God. And I'm not making light of these things. I'm just trying to be sensitive to time where we're in the but the women do ask who will roll away the stone. They have all their anointing stuff. Because you can anoint a, a good, righteous man up to seven days. And, and it's, by the way, over 100 pounds, by the way. That's more than lowest weight of, uh, of ointment. And they're hurling this stuff over in the dark and getting there. And they get there, and they're so excited about anointing them, they forgot about a kind of a key point. And that's something heavier than what they're carrying, like 10 tons of stone sitting in front of a tomb. So like, who's going to get that? How, oh, we forgot about that key thing. Praise God he already took care of that. Jesus, of course, will ultimately reveal himself. And as he reveals himself, he tells us in verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why not every person? Because in every culture, there have been people that have been considered less than people. And in this country, 300 years ago, that would have been a slave. But when you use the word creature, they're not eliminated from the challenge. The baby raper, forgive me for being so open like that. There are people that are like, that's not even a human being. They're a creature. Jesus is like, well, then they qualify. This is the greatest commandment as a servant. Go preach the gospel to them. And it says in verse 17, listen to this statement carefully. These signs will follow those who believe. They're not going to go ahead of it. They'll cast out demons, speak in new tongues. There's our first reference, by the way, to that in, in the New Testament. They will take up servants, and if they servants, serpents, sorry. If they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They'll lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. And so after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because that's what a servant does when he's finished his job. And the servant, the one who executes the king's will, sits at his right hand. And Jesus, 
when he was finished with redeeming us, sat down at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because the job was done. We even say, that's my right hand man. That's the guy who gets the job done. And then it says this, and they went out, and by the way, it's important to note, by the way, as well, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's a place of great honor because he was the lowest servant on earth. He was given the greatest point of honor. And that's exactly what Jesus was telling us. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, be the servant, and here's proof of it. It says, this is how it ends. And they went out and preached everywhere. The Lord, working with them, listen to this statement carefully, confirming the word through accompanying signs. The signs were not there to make the people cool. They were already affirmed. They confirmed the word. People say, we need more miracles. And I say, we need more message. The miracles are to back up the message. They're not to back you up. You were, I mean, you're important because Jesus died on the cross for you. Does that make sense? If you can't get your importance there, you'll never get it from anything else. Okay. That's our whole book. Now I have to make this statement at the end. Remember, I was kind of, because this is something you're going to be able to, you're already like, ah. Oh. <clears throat> Y'all with me? You need a breath for a second. Should I just win it? Okay. I love you guys. Alright. So here's the point. The moment some guy wants to prove how smart he is, one of the ways he tries to do that is by proving he's smarter than the Bible. By the way, I guarantee you, every one of those men are going to have to change their mind when they stand before God. There's no doubt about it. But let's face it, if you take this book that everyone's revered for a couple thousand years, and you're like, ah, I found a crap no one else has found it, well, that's great. But let's just be honest in this. What are we looking at to draw the Bible as we know it? There are three primary extent manuscripts that are, in essence, entirety that we're drawing from. And they're called codexes or codexes. One of them is, and by the way, they're identified by where they're found. One of them today is supposed to be found in the Vatican. And one of these days you can go and take us there if you like. I'm like, hey, we have an Italian friend with us. Let us um, and it's called the Codex Vaticanus. That's fair enough, right? There's one that's called the Codex Sinaiticus because it's found in the Sinai Desert. Would be And then there's one called the Codexus or the Codex Alexandrius, which was found in Alexandria, Egypt. Does that make sense? Now, I remind you, these are all copies of copies still. Is there anything to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls? No. But, uh, yeah, well, I mean, and, it's, and it's, that was, I mean, yeah. That was, they do have a, it's the one place where they found a full extent copy of the uh, Book of Isaiah, originally written. She was a copy of it, but just the same. Okay, sorry. So, it did, it did shut up a lot of these guys because they were like, well, there's this, and they said, well, no, it's actually one. So, and they say, it was written after, well, it can't be written after. It is dated earlier. Nonetheless, they're all found in the 500s. One of the three of them, they dated as 50 years earlier than the other two. Fair enough. <clears throat> That's the one in Alexandria, in Egypt. For those of you who know, Alexandria, Egypt, for over a thousand years, was considered the place where the smart people come from. For two primary reasons. They had the largest university and the biggest library. After Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was split into four parts, or will, if you will. The departs from each person and his commanders each got a part because nobody was like Alexander the Great. So they could nobody was capable of running the whole kingdom. And there were two guys, Ptolemy and Seleucid, 
who basically got the areas of sort of, in essence, Israel north and Egypt south was kind of the idea. And they were always competing over which one of the two of them was more appropriate to have the leadership. And one of the ways they tried to do that, of course, by proving which one was smarter. So the one in the south says he orders to have every book ever written translated into Greek. That's a pretty awesome endeavor. You can't have a bigger library than having every book. We can be thankful for that, by the way, because this maniac Gentile guy, by the way, had the Old Testament translated into Greek, and from that we get this thing called the Septuagint. Seventy religious Jewish scholars translating it into Greek. By the way, for what's worth, Mark quotes the Septuagint. There's some distinctions in regards to the language. Again, speaking perhaps to people who are Gentiles. Does that make sense so far? The problem is, when you have this, that's the university town, that's the most liberal place you get, and it is the hotbed for alternative thinking, including a group called the Gnostics. Gnostics means they had the divine knowledge outside of Scripture. And I can develop that, but I won't. The point is, is that ultimately, if they found what they believed to have a head-on collision with Scripture, guess what was the problem? Scripture. So what they would literally do is carve out of the text those particular texts and remove them from the text. And there are historians that would say the Alexandrian Gnostics would take the Scripture and literally cut them, thus shortening the Scriptures. Now, that is the older of those three codexes. Does that make sense? So when you have one of those, like, people that pull from the New Testament, those kind of things, like the NIV is a classic example, and they'll say, older manuscripts do not contain this text. My first question is, but did it originally contain that text? Regardless of the argument, at least you need to be equipped with that much information to know what you're dealing with. Is that fair? But I remind you, all three of those come from the 500s A.D. If you notice at the bottom of your page, I've given you a handful of people. Justin Martyr, 160 A.D., Cation, 172 A.D., do you see those? Mm-hmm. Arrhenius, 184 A.D., Hippolytus, and here, uh, Why is that important? Because every one of these people quotes this section 16 of, of Gospel of Mark. The, 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 my that they say, oh, it wasn't written until the end of the 500s A.D. Well, if it was written at the end of the 500s A.D., then all of these guys were prophets because they all actually quote from the text that's clearly here at this point. At the time, so I'm giving you the year when it, was, when it came out in publication. As a matter of fact, Patient, who was Justin Martyr's student, incorporated almost the entirety of the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20, in something that he called the, the Dia Tesseron, which I think is now an uh, energy source for the Avengers. Anyway. He did, in essence, kind of, it, was, it was kind of like a blended narrative of all the Gospels. Arrhenius writes against, and it's important to note this, his particular tract, his bulletin, if you will, was called Against Heresies. And and guess what heresies he was going after? The Gnostic heresies. 
in 184 AD. And he explicitly quotes Mark 16:19, a text they say didn't exist for another 400 years. Hippolytus of Rome actually says he quotes and uses Mark's longer ending, quote-unquote. Why would it be a longer ending? Because the Gnostics had cut it. And even in just, you know, well, those are kind of Christian people or whatever, this guy's Heracles, for that's what it's worth, was actually an anti-Christian pagan. And he wrote a pamphlet against them and quotes this text to actually use it to criticize Christians. Yes, yes. And the Codex Sinaiticus and the Sinaiticus Baptist and Were they based off the Alexandrian ones? No. Well, I mean, it's hard to say where their origins, who, what cave, what monk sat in what cave, or how many could write them out. I could just say that when they were found, this is where they reside or where they were found, if that makes sense. Okay. They have dated the one with the holes, if you will, okay. with the least amount as older than the other two. But remind you, again, they're all copies of copies of copies. None of them are dated, even the most generous datings, none of them are dated before the 400s A.D., and they'll say, well, then this text must not have existed. But the problem is, there's an awful lot of guys who tended to actually think so that were hundreds of years closer to the text than that. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So again, and I'm only giving you that because it wouldn't bother me if they thought it was some kind of discrepancy that wouldn't actually make you not believe in Scripture. But the moment you're like, well, I don't know if I can trust my Bible, that's when I get really, that's, that's what bothers me. Is that the thing for John A.? The same for John Ames. That's right. Yeah, the whole woman caught in adultery. How sad is that? You know. So, and, and it's like, John Ames, even though it's completely the same, this text is even more crucial to me because this is a commission. It's like, oh, well, they added this story later to kind of girth up Jesus' compassion inside or whatever. Oh, that's, that's nonsense. But... There's no necessarily there's nothing you couldn't put in the pull out of the rest of the Bible, but this was a very distinct commission that are very, very important things that are that are based in solely off of this to then launch into the epistles. So was this bit found in the other two Yes. yes. Okay. That's the point. Now there are gonna be scraps. And they'll say, Well, here's an old text and it's a bit and, and this is what happens once you kinda of come up with a stance. And they'll say, and they'll say the same about a lot of revelations too. By the way, uh, oh, this this particular portion doesn't exist in this particular thing. And you're like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't have any of the Gospel of Mark in it. So it's safe to say it doesn't have Mark 16 in it. But when you're trying to prove it, you can pull on you and say, well, there's Exhibit 144A and there's Exhibit 212, but they don't have the Gospel of you know, Mark chapter 16 in it. And I'm like, they don't have any of the Gospel of Mark in it. So I think it's fair to say it doesn't have chapter 16, but it's not proving your point. Anyway, so even if you didn't know all of that, just knowing that these guys quoted this, you have to kind of reconcile that part. So that's fair enough. So that's my throat punch to that. Because in other words, the conclusion is you can trust your Bible. I mean, you can say, well, this wording is a little different than this wording. And there, and again, I mean, you know, it actually says God is terrible and God is awful in the King James. 
it. The problem is awful today. I don't know how this is. If it's awesome, it's great. Like, I have some awe, but the moment it's full of awe, it becomes bad. Right? Terrible to me. God, it's big. It's terrible now because we don't like anything bigger than us. Anyway, okay. Now, look at There's so much more, of course, to be said, but this one is, like, the whole point of this is we just kind of want to walk through a gospel like this and go and get the, 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 the servanthood feel of it and see that there's this constant reference to preaching, this constant reference to the gospel, and this constant reference to the multitudes who show up, who, by the way, even at the end, seem to be actually completely betraying Jesus, which means if Jesus really was banking his success on the multitude, we've got a problem, because well, these people really aren't helping him out at the end of this thing. you know. But on the other side, if I was a servant and I was looking for the one-on-one, and then I wasn't going to leave until, man, at least as much as I could, God had called me to do what I was going to do. God's going to call me to account for being the servant he called me to be. And that's a handful of people like this sitting in a room on a day when it's snowing outside. Or it's standing in front of a whole bunch of people somewhere. Else. The point is, is, I'm just going to do what he's called me to do. And I just pray the same for us. And may we be moved with compassion. It's a fantastic thing. And may we gain success by obedience. Fair enough? Well, let's pray. Oh, please. Yes, Mary. No, there will be another, but three distinct times. It's more where they sit. But it's always going to be, by the way, Jesus introduces it in the most transparent way. Well, just plain, right after. Um, right after he is uh, well there's two very important points on that he'll say and then when the transfiguration don't tell anyone this until I've been raised from the dead well, that's kind of it. but when he asks who do men say that I am in the first open declaration that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah the Son of the living God that's a confessor of Philippine. that's when he goes well if you're going to know that I'm the Messiah you better know my mission and that's the first time he just openly blurts out, this is what's going to happen. And that's when Peter kind of jumps with this other stuff. So it isn't distinct to the Gospel of Mark, but he does emphasize it in three different occasions. Which, by the way, is something people try to point out, I think. I would, if I was trying to prove that Peter was the one he was interviewing, because Peter always, always seems to happen in threes with the guy, you know. But just the same. Well, Lord, I do pray that we would be the servants you called us to be, whatever that means, Lord. And I want to thank you for the beauty, Lord, of this night. And, Lord, no doubt, a whole lot of information. But, Lord, I want to thank you for the way that we get to uh, read your word and to, to dive into it and go, yeah, I get it, I get it. Make me this kind of servant. Because really the bottom line of all this, in its simplest sense, after all the water's boiled out and it's just that thick, gooey stuff at the bottom, is if we really want to be great in heaven, it's about being servants now. But if we really want to be great here, it's going to be the opposite. So, Lord, make us the servants you call us to be. May our hearts be willing to be moved with compassion, Lord. And may we never try to just gather a whole lot of people assuming that success versus where we're gauging it by looking at all the people versus turning our heart to you and obeying you. So we seek you, Lord, in that.
And Lord, we recognize there will be seasons of testing and trying, no doubt about that. There will be storms, Lord, where the first time we hit it, we don't know if we're going to make it through, and then the second time, it's just we're trying to get through it. Show us that, Lord, and lead us, Lord, to that place where where we trust you and we see how you get us through these things. Lord, I just pray uh, for us that you would get us home safely, Lord, as uh, and that uh, I might even say that you would just keep the trains going where they need to go to get these guys home, Lord, please. Thank you so much for loving us. And I just pray now you would just bless, bless, bless our precious friends here and make us the servants you call us to in Jesus' name.